0: Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID 19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking with Anthony Cirillo, MD, an emergency medicine physician and board of directors member of the American College of Emergency Physicians, and Corey Feist of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation about mental health stress and burnout among healthcare workers. Thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Cirillo, how would you describe the mental and emotional state of the frontline clinical workforce right now, and how has it changed over the last 18 months?
1: The three words that best describe how most of us feel are isolated, overwhelmed, and disillusioned. I think the isolation is as we've now uh, almost heading into 20 months or so of this pandemic. For healthcare providers, I think people need to remember that there are continual pockets of increased episodes of infection. And so while some areas of the country may be quieted down, we need to remember that that's not true everywhere. And with healthcare workers, there is always the fear that you are bringing home a potentially fatal disease to your family and loved ones. And so every shift is another risk where you go home and wonder, am I going to harm my family today by trying to do the right thing? I think in terms of being overwhelmed, as we've seen the pandemic progress, we've lost a lot of people in healthcare. And we've lost some of them to tragic reasons. And we've lost some of them because they've just lost the will to go back and and put themselves and their families at risk every day. And that has made it harder for those of us who are still manning the front lines. So we need to remember that it's gotten harder to be in the emergency department because we're taking care of more people with less people. When it comes down to it, it's the people in the ED, it's the team that really make it doable. And then I'll say just disillusioned because we are at a point where the discordance between being called a healthcare hero and being afraid to go shopping in your scrubs because you might be verbally or physically assaulted it is just really unbearable.
0: Mr. Feist, what have been the major drivers of mental health stress and burnout among the clinical workforce during the pandemic?
1: Big
2: disclaimer. I'm a lawyer and an MBA, but I'm not a mental health professional, and I'm also not a medical professional, but I'll tell you what I've heard. I also run the medical group for the University of Virginia health system of about 1,100 healthcare professionals, so I can tell you what I've heard. What appears to be happening in maybe two big buckets is you've got burnout, which is not a mental health condition. Um, and you have mental health conditions like trauma, pt, you know, in the in the byproduct of trauma, PTSD, and, and those symptoms that are happening. And I think there's definitely a Venn diagram where it overlaps in the middle. But what we have a, what we have heard is just what was described. We've been running a marathon without a clear finish line. And oh, by the way, we started that marathon out on not not fully fueled and fully hydrated, but rather already. On the verge of burnout or significantly burned out and we've been running this marathon ill-equipped without a without a real clear finish line for a long time and so for those healthcare professionals who are just in the industry and even whether they're taking care of patients or not the burnout associated with just the grind as was described i mean now the reduction in staffing it's just it's just taken a toll on everyone and We need to bring a lot of resources to bear to redesign the healthcare delivery systems so that we can prevent this in the future. And then what we know is there's been so much exposure to trauma and repetitive trauma. I mean, what we've heard from new physicians, new nurses, is that they've now seen more trauma than some seasoned physicians have seen in their career, you know, pre-pandemic. So we've got to support those individuals. And because there's so much stigma, so many regulatory hurdles for our medical professionals, doctors and nurses to get the care that they need, we've got this additional hurdle that they are going to have to overcome, which... Which doesn't apply to people like me who don't have fear for losing my license if I go to see a therapist. So we've got a complex puzzle to start to work through here that is not going to go away. Just as, as we see in pockets COVID receding, um, we will see an increase in the symptoms of PTSD and other things where where folks have a time to breathe. And so we just got to support the workforce, whether that be through redesigning the coal mine, if you will, or and or providing therapeutic interventions without fear of retribution or fear of stigma. That's, our, that's the challenge we have ahead for us.
1: Corey, I, th- I think that's a great analogy. And you know, we hear talk about building resiliency. And I know that, you know, part of the, the work of the Lorna Breen Act and part of the funding that's come is to build resiliency. But I will tell you within the healthcare worker community, that's akin to building a stronger canary. That's not the answer. The answer is not to build stronger canaries. The answer is to fix the coal mine and we need resources. We need both because right now we're the only canaries left in the coal mine. So so we do need to be, we need some help but we need to fix the system and we need to fix the coal mine. And that means more resources, where patients need them. So we need more community resources, we need more mobile crisis resources, we need to make use of telehealth more effectively, but we need to get people care where they are and not just try and make healthcare workers resilient to the woes of the healthcare delivery system, which is really not designed to take care of people with mental illness. So I I wanna echo what Corey said, this is about, we need resources to to fix the coal mine, not just to build stronger canaries.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Kim Hansen. Advance the career of your colleagues by encouraging them to apply to become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org forward slash i I'd like you both to weigh in on this next question. Given the stress and the trauma that healthcare workers have endured for so many months, Can you tell us more about the immediate interventions that are needed to support them to meet their mental health and emotional needs? You've talked about getting them the care where they are, fixing the coal mine. Tell us a little more about what that looks like.
1: You know, right now, the the thing that is wearing the most on us, as Corey has mentioned, is we're still running this marathon and there is no end in sight. And so as we lose healthcare workers from the system, uh, it just gets harder and harder to take good care of patients. And those patients understandably get frustrated when the waits are longer, when they feel like people aren't paying as much attention to them and caring for them the way we, we really want to. But there is a limit to how much you can you can give. And at some point, the system really, if it doesn't have the right resources, just kind of beats everybody down. So I think we need resources in the hospitals. We need, the, we need money to go to fixing the healthcare system healthcare workers, we need to remember to stay connected to them. And I would offer that that's why many of them are leaving this profession is because they feel like they weren't supported. And one of the stories I hear all the time is, you know, getting pizzas for your staff is not the same as supporting them. And in some ways it's an insult because probably they don't even have time to stop to have lunch, to have pizza. So, you know, there is no lunch break in the ED ever. And I would say that the isolation part, one of the things that we can do now is encourage everybody to get a buddy and be a buddy, right? We need to stay connected to each other and, and we need to be intentional about that. So I think those are, you know, you know, for those people who are involved in healthcare, the one thing you we can all do is, you know, reach out to somebody else and stay close to them and honestly have somebody that you can share with. We, we're all going through the same foxhole, you know, for 20 months now. So we can kind of support each other, but also keep an eye on each other as well.
2: I'm going to support what Tony says. This is like the mutual admiration society we've got here, Tony. I want to support what he had to say with a little bit of of data that I've learned from the American Medical Association. So the AMA did a coping with COVID-19 survey over about over a year. And it was interesting for me to to look at the results because there were two things that really stuck out right in my face. One is that the healthcare workforce at large, uh, 50% of the healthcare workforce across the spectrum, irrespective of role, by the way, doesn't feel valued or only slightly feels valued by where they work. Okay. And why does that, other than just sounding like a really horrible thing, why does that matter? It actually ties to your own resilience and your own susceptibility to being burned out. One of the things that needs to happen right now across the healthcare workforce is leaders, and they're susceptible to this too, need to engage their workforce to say, what does it mean to you, Amanda, to be valued here? What does it mean to you, to Tony, to be valued here? Having those basic conversations, I think, is one very important thing that healthcare leaders need to do to support the well-being of their workforce. Because for some people, it might be pizza, some people it might be t-shirts, but other things might, it just may be saying thank you, it's a personal conversation that needs to happen. And that's really becomes a leadership conversation. Uh, the, the second piece of data that I want to I support and what Tony said is in that same survey, when you look at what the physicians in particular prioritize as what they want for effectively therapy on a spectrum of different type of interventions, peer support rises to the top. And I think a lot of that has to do with the stigma associated with formal mental health treatment licensure, things like that. But I also think there's nothing like walking a day in Tony's shoes to, to be able to just knock down a lot. There's a lot, of, there's a lot of background that Tony doesn't have to give one of his colleagues if he's talking to a colleague about like the day because they've walked a day in his shoes. Scaling peer support programs across this country is something that is a very tangible thing that needs to be done. Now, we have to be careful because in all of these things, you've got to be careful with the message that this is not just about the workforce taking care of itself. Everyone has a role here, but right now I would point to leadership having conversations around what it means to be valued, also scaling peer support programs right now. You know, those are two very tangible things that health systems can do to support their workforce right now.
0: Dr. Cirillo, what health policy changes and programs are needed to prevent burnout and to address depression and anxiety among clinical workforce over the long term?
1: I will go back to Amanda that part of this is fixing the system of delivery of of healthcare, not just on the medical side, but particularly for patients with mental illness. You know, the Mental Health Parity Act passed, I don't even know how many years ago, probably 10 plus years ago, and we don't have mental health parity here in this country. If you come to the emergency department with a heart attack, we guarantee we'll get you into the cardiac cath lab within 30 minutes, that's the standard. If you're a 16 year old who is suicidal, you could spend 30 days in a nine-by-nine nine room waiting for an inpatient placement. I was just in Boston for our annual meeting, and I caught up with a colleague from New York, and I asked him how things were going in his ED, and, and he told me the same tale of woe that everybody else does about boarding patients with psychiatric illness in the ED, and he told me one of the patients, and this was late October, he said, well, but I know one of them's going to be discharged on November 15th and i said to him how could you possibly know that they're going to be discharged on november 15th and he said that that's when she turns 18 so that's how we'll know we'll be able to get her into an adult facility because there's no pediatric beds what i tell people is you know when we have patients like that particularly pediatric patients in the ed um, if you walk around the department to avoid making eye contact with the parent who's trying to connect with you, uh, those are guilty steps. They don't count on your Fitbit, just so you know. And the other part of this is when per- healthcare workers feel like they need care, uh, it's particularly difficult, especially in rural areas, because if you go to access care, everybody knows you. There is no privacy. There is no secrecy. And we've all seen how patients in the ED with mental illness sometimes get treated less than as I think we would all hope they would. And so we've seen the downside, the dark side of how patients with mental illness are treated, and that really prevents people from seeking care. So from a policy point of view, first of all, I would say that Um, the biggest change starts with each of us. As we each are mindful of patients with mental illness and particularly mindful of their families, I think we can change some of the culture and some of the stigma. To Corey's point, there are best practices for health hospital credentialing and state medical and state professional licensure, where there should be only one question asked, which is, do you currently have any condition that would impair your ability to care for patients? It shouldn't ask about what you've done in the past or what you've had in the past. That's irrelevant. Uh, In May of last year, the Joint Commission came out with a a statement for hospitals saying, stop asking that stuff. It's it's not relevant. And you are just really preventing people from being honest. And one of the other things that needs to change is that many state professional boards don't have a process for helping people with mental illness. And so patient uh, providers who admit that they have mental illness are put into the substance abuse monitoring pathway, which is unfair and doesn't get them the help they need and creates one more level of stigma. So I think there are a number of things that we can do from a policy perspective, more resources to improve the healthcare system, particularly for mental illness, being more mindful of how we create the culture or remove the stigma around mental illness and then the third is you know, changing state laws and hospital credentialing so that healthcare workers feel that there will not be anything that is used against them, so to speak, if they admit that they were having mental illness issues.
2: The Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act was unanimously passed in the United States Senate this summer, and it is on the way to be passed in the House of Representatives it provides $140 million worth of new programs for hospitals and health systems, as well as for training programs um, in hospitals and health systems to take care of the current and future workforce, as well as provides funding for a national awareness campaign of best practices that the CDC is gonna run, and then a longitudinal study of the root cause of these issues. The Lorna breen Act is the first step from a federal perspective in I think an entire body of law that needs to come to bear here to really address this—the the many layers of this onion—whether those be in looking at electronic medical record utilization, optimization, you know, th- those regulations, or any of the myriad of other challenges. Whether that be in reimbursement for mental health services to then encourage more mental health providers in this world. Or just a myriad of other challenges. And, and we hope to get through a lot of that as the Lorna Breen Act likely will pass and become law before the end of the calendar year. Our website, dr has a lot of information on the legislation if your listeners are interested in hearing about the kind of the exactly where it is. As as Tony suggested, at the state and local level, we've identified that there are actually at least six areas of regulatory burden that impact the physicians, as well as in 22 states' nurses. He's hit on a couple, a state licensure, credentialing questions, but there are also questions that physicians in particular are asked to fill out when they apply to be paid by insurance companies, when they apply for malpractice insurance. Also in many states, if a physician is sued for malpractice, that physician's own mental health medical record can be subpoenaed by the other side um and finally as 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 tony suggested not just in rural places where there's a limit, there are really restrictions on on access or limits on access to mental health services by the workforce but in many hospitals and health systems across the country because they they self insure their medical care they often require their own Institution be the place that their medical care is accessed. It it makes sense from a business perspective, but in speaking to the widow of a physician named Scott Jolly from Utah, who died by suicide in the last 12 months, Scott had to use his own mental health facilities for his first and only inpatient admission to psychiatry, and he died by suicide after discharge. And so there are a number of these things across the spectrum. And I'm sure my six, which, which I published in U.S. News and World Report on, on September 9th, I'm sure I'm not exhaustive in it, but that's just what we've learned in the last 18, 20 months since beginning this journey. But there are some, some things that even even though each one of those is going to take a lot of work to knock out, there are things that we've, we've encouraged our hospitals and health systems to do with that information. And, and to be more specific, what we've said is just publish a report card for your workforce as to where your organization lines up on these six barriers. Because what we know is there is such lore out there about the loss of license, about what the regulations are versus what they aren't. Uh, And this for us was very personal because Dr. Breen, before she died by suicide, clearly articulated to us that she was gonna lose her license in New York State to practice medicine because she got her first and only mental health treatment of her career. And she couldn't have been more wrong, frankly. In New York State, there aren't even questions in the licensure application. And so one of the things we've asked every hospital in this country to do is just publish what the facts are for their workforce. In this one way, this very tangible way, not only are you recognizing and acknowledging that this is a challenge and supporting your workforce, but you're actually potentially saving lives and you're not, that's not requiring policy change. That's just really taking what the existing law regulation is and letting people know. And then if there needs to be a change in your area, working to advocate for that change, but just establishing that baseline is, is really a baseline of understanding is one very tangible thing that hospitals can do right now.
0: Mr. Feist, I wanted to specifically thank you for all of your hard work and leadership on the Dr. Lorna Breen Act. That's a bill that IDSA has also been really proud to support. And one of our board members was actually able to testify um, before Congress in support of the bill earlier this year. So we so appreciate all of your work on that front. One last question for the both of you. Based on your personal experiences, what advice do you have for clinicians and other healthcare personnel who are continuing to work to get to the other side of this pandemic?
1: I will remind them that they are not alone, right? That we are the silent majority are people who understand that mental illness uh, is not a choice and that want to help. In the foxhole, uh, it's hard to remember that there's a bigger picture and that there will be an end to this, but I would just remind all of my colleagues that many of us are here with you and don't ever feel alone. My second one is to be an advocate, to use your voice. You know, we talk about if you see something, say something. I would offer that all healthcare workers, that that silent majority, need to stand up and start advocating for those who can't. You know, the 16-year-old can't advocate from the nine-by-nine room, but you can advocate for them. And then lastly, again, be mindful of people with mental illness. It's not a choice. Be mindful of their families and be mindful of each other.
2: One of the things that I've learned, Amanda, in the last 20 months is when the unspeakable happens to your family and you speak about it, it gives others permission to speak about it too. And one of the big ways that we've helped to address stigma this year is just going on shows like yours and just talking about these issues openly. And so the first piece of advice I would give to everyone in healthcare is to talk about these issues we know that they are front and center don't don't bury them because we know that in in leadership people look to the senior leaders for how they're modeling behavior and there is a hierarchy in medicine just like there's a hierarchy in every business and so if those senior physicians are speaking out about whether they they are they're challenged or encouraging others to just take a break i mean some of this is formal mental health treatment but there's a whole spectrum here and so, taking care of yourself and be, engaging in self care and the concept of self care not being selfish is really a very important thing, and then also just recognizing take care of each other, talk to each other about these issues again, some of this is is just about having the open conversation, so, as tony said you don 't feel like you 're alone in it. Dr. Breen felt like she was very alone in the last week of her practice in in New York City. She felt very isolated for all of the reasons that tony suggested and after she died, we heard from so many who just decided to have daily check-ins with their colleagues who so they didn't see. They are working in other hospitals. But there are ways that people can do this. And, and right now, we've got to just take care of ourselves, take care of each other. And then we can work on redesigning this coal mine, as Tony and I have suggested. But we've got to get through this. And the best way, I think, right now is just having those open conversations, being vulnerable. I've, I've cried on just about every national telecast there is. But once you get over that vulnerability and getting to those key conversations, I think really helps to change the landscape and change the culture and make it better for the future generations, as well as how long as we want to stay in this perfection. So thanks for the question. It is really important right now.
0: At this time, I'd like to thank Dr. Cirillo and Mr. Feist for everything you've shared with us today. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org. And don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jesic. The
2: views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should
1: not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.